When I was just a child, I heard the beautiful story. How you loved me so that you died on Calvary. And though I claimed him way back then as Lord Almighty, haven't changed my love still the same you're still Lord to me you're still Lord you're still my Father very little or in much I still feel your touch you're still my Lord you're still Lord you're still my Father have called you Lord but now they serve another and to worldly things their heart has pledged its loyalty oh but as for I made my choice, it was forever, and just as before, oh, but now even more, you're still Lord to me, and you're still still feel your touch you're still Time, you're 
I wish my sister was here to sing it for you. She sings it much better than I do. But the truth is still the same. I, I used to think very, uh, very performance-based and that God maybe wouldn't really want me if I couldn't live up to a certain standard. And um, I, as I've told you before, I, I for a time left off trying to serve the Lord, not because I didn't believe in Him or because I didn't want to, but simply because I felt like I couldn't do it. I felt incapable of living the Christian life. And during that time, God so clearly spoke to me, and, and what he said to me was nothing about how I needed to do better or try harder, but what he said to me was that he still loved me, even though I had given up trying to serve him. And that little voice in my head just kept coming back over and over again. You know, I still love you until the day that finally I came back to the Lord and said, okay, I'll try again. And it wasn't very long after that that God came in a clear and a sweet way to deal with my failure mentality, my performance mindset, and asked me to make a commitment to say, no matter how many times I might fall down and have to get back up again, that I would commit to be a Christian and serve Him for the rest of my life. I was, I think, about 18 years old when God helped me to make that choice. And I'm glad to say tonight, he's, he's still my Lord. He's my master. He's in control of my life. I don't want to be in control. I want to continue talking to you this morning about going from the empty tomb to the upper room. From the empty tomb to the upper room. And I um, mentioned to you last week how um, the followers of Jesus had a mere 50 days from the time that he rose and came out of the grave till the time that they were to leave the upper room and go out into the streets of Jerusalem and declare the message of the risen Christ. And that's a, that's a tall order. And uh, 
we notice how even after the resurrection, the followers of Jesus still did not seem to be clear on everything that was meant by Jesus' life and death and resurrection. In fact, we find on the Mount uh, of Ascension uh, in Acts chapter 1, just before Jesus ascends back into the heavens that his followers asked him, Lord, is that at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And though Jesus has died and rose again, they still don't seem to understand. So there are a few things that I believe needed to fall into place in the minds of the disciples in order to bring them from the empty tomb to the upper room into that place where they are ready to receive the fullness of God's Spirit and then go out into the world as witnesses for Jesus. Reading to you this morning from John chapter 21 and beginning with verse 1. John chapter 21, beginning with verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter... Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And incidentally, Jesus knew they didn't have any fish. The, uh, the original of that phrase translates more directly to, you don't have any fish, do you? Um, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no, verse 6. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, "'Bring some of the fish that you have just caught.' So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them." And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. 
He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to Peter, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for being Lord and master and demonstrating that you are uh, one that we can trust. We can safely entrust our lives into your hands and know that you want nothing but good for us. Would you help us in this service this morning? Would you speak to hearts by your word? And Lord, we pray that someone will come to that place this morning of declaring you to be the Lord of their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we spoke to you about how the disciples needed to be reassured in order to believe again. How after the death of Christ and even some hearing reports of his resurrection did not fully believe and they needed that reassurance in a variety of ways in order to believe again. Today I want to talk to you about those who needed to be reminded of their commitments in order to help them follow again. First of all, as I look at this story, I see that Jesus is calling us and calling his disciples in the story to make a commitment to follow permanently, a permanent commitment, not a temporary commitment, not a a temporary change of lifestyle, but a lifelong permanent commitment to follow Jesus. The first part of this story, verses 1 through 14, records the second time that Jesus asks the disciples uh, about their fishing, and they have to say, we've caught nothing. And he says, again, for the second time, try casting your net on the other side of the boat. And they did, and they found their many fish. What interests me about this story is that it is a very close parallel uh, in so many details to the time that Jesus first called some of these disciples to come and follow him. We read about that story in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. 
It says that there was a crowd pressing on Jesus to hear the word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, and the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Peter's. Jesus asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Peter, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Peter said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Now, whether you are a professional fisherman like these guys were, or whether you are a hobbyist and you just like to fish every once in a while for fun, it's discouraging to fish for any length of time and not really catch anything. Now, if you're like me, I don't have a great deal of patience or determination when it comes to that kind of thing. And I suppose I've changed as I've gotten older. I can, I can go out and, and feed my worms to the fish and uh, just kind of enjoy being outdoors and, and nature. But still, if I go for maybe a half hour or so, and I'm not at least getting a little nibble every now and then, I, I begin to get restless and, and think, maybe I should try that spot over there around the other side of the lake. Maybe I should try that spot over by the pier. And I just, I'm not content to just sit still. Well, these guys were fishermen. It's interesting when we think about what Jesus was trying to accomplish in his own ministry and setting up his followers to continue his ministry. Jesus called fishermen. Uh, at least six or seven of the disciples seemed to have been fishermen. They were professional fishermen. They were men who would have been courageous. They were men who would have been dedicated and not easily distracted from their task, from their job. Often we think about Jesus calling fishermen, and we, we may refer to them as uneducated and illiterate and, and say, you know, look what Jesus used to spread the gospel around the world. But when I think about it from another point of view, I think really Jesus kind of knew what he was doing when he called fishermen. Because he, he called men who were courageous men. They were dedicated men. Peter said to Jesus this first time when Jesus called him to follow, Peter said, Lord, we fished all night and have caught nothing. But he said, nevertheless, at your word, we will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, the scripture says, and their nets were breaking. I told you this story from Luke chapter 5 when Jesus first called Peter is a little bit like the story from John, but it's also different in some ways. In this story from Luke chapter 5, when Peter saw what had happened, he said, he, he fell at Jesus' feet and said, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He recognized his un worthiness. What interests me in the story from John uh, chapter 21 that we read after Jesus has died and risen from the grave, Peter can't wait to get to where Jesus is. 
he jumps into the boat, to the, the boat's still about 100 yards or so from shore, and uh, that's not very far for a boat, but that's a ways to swim. But Peter couldn't wait to get there. Something had changed. Again, the story from Luke chapter 5. After they'd gotten the fish to shore, everybody was astonished at the great catch of fish and also the partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Jesus. Now, some people look at this story from John chapter 21 and uh, there's, there's some speculation. I myself have thought about this story, um, and I kind of think that Peter and the other disciples just really didn't know what to do. Yes, Jesus had died on the cross, he had risen from the grave, but they still didn't understand the full impact of what had happened. They didn't know what they were supposed to do with what had happened, and so they did the only thing they knew to do. They just kind of went back to what was familiar. They went back to fishing. And some of us would say, you know, were they, were they wrong to do this? I don't know for sure if I, could, if I would say directly they were wrong. I, I do think they were maybe still not fully understanding who Jesus was and what Jesus wanted to accomplish. But this wonderful story that is such a close parallel to the first time that Jesus called Peter to come and follow him is full of memories for the disciples. I don't know how many of you picked up on these memories, but it's full of memories. First of all, there's just this great catch of fish. I don't know how long it took. I would think as soon as they heard this man from the shore that they did not recognize to say, try the other side of the boat. Try catching, try casting on the other side of the boat. To me, that sounds very familiar to what happened before. When they began to catch the fish, probably John, the disciple that Jesus loved, said right away, oh, it's the Lord. Peter jumped in, and another thing that's interesting is to see that when they all come to shore, there they find a charcoal fire with bread and fish. Jesus didn't really need their fish. He already had fish, but he invited them to bring the fish that they had caught, and there they had breakfast of bread and fish. Probably reminded them of another time that they saw Jesus break bread and feed thousands of people with just a few pieces of bread and a few pieces of fish. Then there was a charcoal fire. Can you think of another time in Scripture that there was a charcoal fire? Just a few chapters prior to this in the Gospel of John, we read about Peter's denial of Jesus Christ. Peter is that one who had said, Lord, I will, I will follow you though everybody forsakes you. That's another thing that's been wondered about this passage of Scripture in John 21 when Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? What is the these 
that Jesus was talking about. And some have thought maybe, maybe Jesus was talking about the fish in the boats because Peter had gone back fishing and said, do you love me more than you love fishing? And some have thought others. I, I think that Jesus was calling Peter to, to remember his previous statements of commitment and affirmation. Though everyone forsake you, Lord, I will not forsake you. Peter, do you really love me more than these? Are you fully committed? Then we come to this time when Jesus is on trial. And Peter is as close as he feels safe to be. He's in the courtyard of the high priest. In John chapter 18, uh, verse 17 It says, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. I don't think it's coincidental that when Peter and the other disciples came to shore, they found a charcoal fire right after which Jesus begins to talk to Peter and ask him these questions. Do you love me more than these? Memories, memories, just triggering these memories. You see, this story of the great catch of fish is such a close parallel to the first calling that those disciples received. And I think that John records this to show us how Jesus used this as an opportunity to remind them of their first commitment and say, no, you cannot go back to what you used to be. It's a gentle reminder. There are no pointed words from our Lord. There are no accusations from Jesus, but simply all of these memories that would have come flooding into their minds to remind them, no, you committed to following me way back there, and I don't want you to forget. It's a commitment to following Jesus permanently. A lifelong commitment. I'm not going to go back. I'm not going to change. And Jesus, it's as if Jesus is saying to them, this is who you were, but it's not who you are. You are now called to be my followers. A call to follow permanently. Also a call to follow publicly. I already mentioned to you the charcoal fire. And here in verses 15 through 19, as I'm sure the other disciples are listening in to Peter's conversation, I've kind of always had in my mind that probably maybe Jesus slipped his arm around Peter and they walked a little distance away so that they could have some privacy, but I really don't think that's what happened. There's no indication from Scripture that that's what happened. It simply says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, do you love me more than these? And three times Jesus asks this question. Now, those of you that may 
have some knowledge of the, the uh, original languages of the Greek, uh, you may know that there are two words that are used for love here in this, uh, in this story. Jesus uses the word uh, uh, based on agape, the word for divine love, that we say is divine love. And Peter, when he responds, he uses the word for, uh, for brotherly love. It's phileo love. And some have argued that Peter was not saying the same thing that Jesus was saying, and that Peter was not rising to the level of commitment that Jesus was calling for. I used to think that, but I don't think that anymore, and I'll tell you why. You may disagree with this, that's okay, but I'll tell you why. Most likely, Jesus and his disciples were speaking in Aramaic. John in his gospel, John's gospel is written in Greek. And so John throughout his gospel, not just here, but there are other examples throughout the gospel of John where he uses the agape form and the phileo form of love and he uses them interchangeably to to both mean the same thing, saying the same thing. So I don't think that Jesus is, is calling Peter to a higher level and Peter's not rising to that level. I think that John is using those words interchangeably. It's meaning the same thing. And Jesus is simply asking Peter, Peter, do you love me? Are you really committed to me? Three times, Peter was a, a public failure. Three times a public failure. Three times he denied his Lord. And, yet, and, and here, three times Jesus gives him a public opportunity to affirm his commitment and his love for the Lord. And three times he does give this public affirmation. The third time, the scripture says he is grieved because he asked him three times. And I'm sure his grief flows right out of that memory of how just days before. Now, I happen to think that Peter already knew he was forgiven. I believe he already knew that because when the angels sent the women with the message of the risen Lord, they, they said, go back and tell my disciples and Peter. And Peter already knew that he was included. What I believe is that Jesus gives this opportunity to Peter specifically for him in front of the other Jesus followers, in front of the other disciples to affirm for them, for their sake, because Peter is going to become a significant leader in the Jesus movement, in the ongoing story of, of the church and Jesus' kingdom. And so Peter again affirms publicly. As I said, no doubt in Peter's mind about Jesus' love for him and Jesus' forgiveness for him, but I'm not so sure about what the other disciples thought of where Peter stood. And this was Peter's opportunity to again publicly affirm, I'm all in, 
Yes, he knew he had faltered, he had failed, but he's back on his feet again, and he's all in, fully committed to loving and following and serving Jesus. But finally, notice this commitment is a call, a personal call to follow Jesus. It's a permanent call, it's a public call, but it's also a permanent or a personal call to follow Jesus. We read in verses 20 through 23 how after Jesus has told Peter what's going to happen to him in his later years, Peter turns and sees John and says, well, Lord, what about this other guy? What's going to happen to him? It's interesting about the twelve that there was enough variety in their backgrounds and in their personalities seemingly uh, that uh, there, there would have been plenty of differences amongst them. I, I said there were six or seven fishermen, but we've got to remember that there was also a, a tax collector who, who would have been seen by his other countrymen, the other Jews, he would have been seen as a, a collaborator, a co-conspirator with the Romans. And there was also a zealot. And, and I hope you will excuse me for making this comparison, but just to give you an idea of, of what that was probably like, to have those two guys in, in this group of 12, that's probably very similar to having a, a, uh, a progressive Democrat in the same group with a MAGA Republican. So you can imagine the, the, the friction and the tension that probably existed between those two guys. Maybe not exactly like that, but that's probably as close to a comparison as we can get. And what's interesting is that they, they always seem to be concerned about the other guy, the other person. Not personal responsibility, not their personal relationship with Jesus, but the other person. This is why I did not like being a supervisor. And when I got a supervisor's job, I stuck it out for two years and finally went to my, my boss and said, I'm sorry, this is not for me. And it's because I had employees that I was responsible for who were not content to focus on their responsibility and do their job, but they were always looking at, around at what everybody else was doing, and then they would want to come to me and say, you, do you know what so-and-so is doing? And they're, they're, they should be doing this, and they should be doing that. And over and over again, I would try to say, you know, the cream rises to the top. If you stay in your lane and take care of your responsibility and do well, You'll be fine. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. This was Peter. Lord, what about this other guy? And Jesus lets him know he has an individual, personalized plan for Peter. And also an individual, personalized plan for John. And what Jesus is going to do with John is not any of Peter's business. 
Peter sa- or Jesus says to Peter, what is that to you? You follow me. And he calls for an individual, personal response from Peter. And he also calls for an individual, personal response from each one of us. And I know sometimes when we get to the nitty-gritty of, of what it really means to live the Christian life, and we try to figure out what's inbounds and what's out of bounds for us as, as individual Christians. It's very easy for us to look across the aisle or look at, at somebody else and say, but Lord, what about so-and-so? They can do that. Why is it that I feel like you don't want me to do that? And friends, Jesus would say to you, what is that to you? You follow me. He has an individual, personalized plan for each one of us. It is commitment, friends. It is commitment that is personal. It's not based on what somebody else does. It's not based on what your, what your grandparents or your parents have done. And, and some of you, perhaps like me, are privileged to have had a godly heritage. You have, you have parents or grandparents that you can look back on and say, oh, they were wonderful saints of God. But friends, no matter whether that's the case or not, you can't ride to heaven on anybody's coattails. There is a personal commitment that is called for. I believe there is also a public commitment that is called for. There is no secret service in the Lord's army. There is no, no sense in which we can just, you know, be just Jesus and me and try to fly under the radar. It's a public calling, and it's also a permanent calling when we come to serve Jesus. God's Word says that the one who has decided to follow Jesus but puts his hand to the plow and then looks back, the Word says is not fit for the kingdom of God. We are called upon to make a lifelong commitment to serve and follow Jesus. This is a man named William Borden. In 1887, William Borden was born into a wealthy family. You may have heard of the Borden Dairy family. He was the heir to that fortune and earned, uh, that's, that was going to be his company, the Borden Dairy Company, when he grew up and came of age. In 1904, when William Borden graduated from high school, his parents gifted him a, a trip around the world as a Graduation present from high school. That'd be a nice graduation present, wouldn't it? Trip to Europe and you travel, see all the wonderful places. That'd be great. But as William Borden traveled through Asia and through the Middle East and various parts of Europe, he came home with a burden for the broken people of those countries that he had seen. He was already a Christian, had already learned about following Jesus and, and had served him. But it was in this trip that he began to get the broken people of the world upon his heart. Hearing about Bill's calling to the mission field, a friend expressed concern to him that William was throwing himself away as a missionary. Here he was, this young man with a good education, very talented, and, and uh, could, could uh, uh, inherit his family's business and, and all of that. 
but his response to this concern was to write two words in the back of his Bible. No reserves. No reserves. And it was the beginning of a formula that would define his life. In 1904, William Borden began preparing for ministry at Yale University. Yes, Yale used to be a place where you could go and prepare for ministry. Can't do that there anymore. His classmates immediately noticed that he was unique, not for his wealth, but for his submission to Christ. He quickly became an encouragement to other students on the campus, and, and it wasn't long before a, a prayer meeting was started, and he was one of the leaders of this prayer meeting, and revival began to break out. His ministry extended not only to his peers at school, but to those anywhere within his reach. He uh, sought out opportunities in the community, and one of uh, William Borden's friends wrote that he might often be found in the lower parts of the city at night, on the street, in cheap lodging houses, or perhaps in some restaurant to which he had taken a poor hungry man to feed him, seeking to lead people to Jesus Christ. After graduation, Bill was offered several high-paying jobs, but he was devoted to his calling. He refused to be sucked back into the business world where he could make his fortune. But rather, he was determined to travel to China to witness to the Muslim Kanzu people. And it was at this time that he wrote the second part of his life's formula in the back of his Bible. Again, two words, no retreats, no reserves, no retreats. After graduating from Yale, William Borden attended Princeton. And after a few more years of study, he sailed for China on December 17, 1912. And because he wanted to minister to a predominantly Muslim country, he even took time to stop in Egypt to study Arabic so that he'd be fully equipped to reach the Muslim people. However, while in Egypt, William Borden contracted spinal meningitis and shortly after died on April 9, 1913, at the age of 25 years old. Before he ever had the opportunity to begin his ministry, he died. Some people hear that story, heard that story, I hear that story, and as you first hear it, you think, that doesn't make sense. Why would someone with so much potential and, and so much possibility for their life then turn, give it all to Christ and for the sake of Christ, turn their back on that and say, no reserves, no retreats, I'm following Jesus, I'm going to the mission field. And then to see his life cut short, never having had the opportunity to serve in the way he felt God was calling him. He had spent years preparing for it, sacrificing for it, and devoted to it. But you see, before he died, William Borden wrote two final words in the back of his Bible. And it was these words, no regrets, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. You see, William Borden's life was not dedicated to a calling. It was not dedicated to accomplishment. It was not dedicated to performance. But his life was devoted solely and completely to serving and following Jesus. And he succeeded at that. And friends, that's what Jesus calls every one of us to. And if we are to come to the upper room 
and experience the fullness of blessing that God has for every one of us, it will require this kind of commitment, a personal commitment, a public commitment, but also a permanent, say, for my life long, for the rest of my life. And you may say, Pastor, what about, what if I, what if I falter along the way? What if I can't live up to it? Well, friends, all that means is you simply, you're, you're committing to just getting back up. You, you get back up and you keep going. I want to invite you to stand with me.